You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. Hank Gola has spent more than four decades as a sports journalist, covering professional football and golf for the New York Daily News and the New York Post. Hank began his career in New Jersey at the Herald News of Passaic and the Daily Record of Morris County where he covered the Cosmos of the North American Soccer League and the New York Giants of the NFL. Hank's talent as a sports writer has earned several awards over the years, and most recently, in 2018, he received the coveted Lincoln Worden Award for Golf Journalism from the Metropolitan Golf Writers Association, an honor he shares with Jim McKay, Chris Schenkel, Dave Anderson, John Feinstein, and George Pepper. Hank has also written three books, In 1987, he published Hard Nose with Jim Burt, the inside story of the Giants' 1986 Super Bowl season. And in 1998, he published an illustrated biography of a young golfer named Tiger Woods. This past November, after nearly four years of meticulous research involving more than 75 personal interviews, Hank published City of Champions, a book that tells the story of the people and the drama behind the Garfield High School Boilermakers in their quest to win the National Football Championship in 1939. As a native of Garfield, New Jersey, this book was a labor of love for Hank, as well as a very personal tribute to a generation of Americans who embodied this nation's highest ideals, many of whom eventually gave their lives fighting the tyranny of Hitler. City of Champions continues to receive critical acclaim and has been particularly well-received within his hometown. Next month, for example, Hank will receive the Walter D. Head Award from the Garfield, New Jersey Rotary Club in recognition of his book's rekindling of the town's pride in an achievement that took place 80 years ago, and that has long provided Garfield with the right to call itself the City of Champions, a claim that's remained to this day on the road sign that welcomes visitors into that town. Hank, I'm honored to have you as a guest on Golf Yeah, and I was particularly pleased to learn in my research that we have two things in common an interest in Civil War history, and Huckleberry Finn is one of our favorite books. So welcome to Golf Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got that off uh, Pigskin Books. The uh, They reviewed I it in, in, over in England. Shane Richmond has a site yeah. over there that's actually pretty good. about. It. He reviews a lot of books for the UK football audience. Yeah, I frequently mention Huckleberry Finn as my favorite book, and, and sometimes reluctantly because I feel like people think it's a kid's book, but it's really not, I don't, no. I don't think. Yeah, no, it's not. It says a lot. And uh, I find it somewhat amusing that it's been banned in certain libraries. <laughs> right. But right. there you have okay. it. I was wondering if we could uh, start off with uh, with you giving us some backstory on your career in sports journalism and in terms of how and when that got started. Well, it got started while I was attending Montclair State College in New Jersey, where I became the sports editor of the Montclairian. Uh, and then took a job at the Passaic Carroll News as a part-timer. That's how you basically broke into the business back then. If you wanted to get into news side, you took obituaries over the phone. And if you wanted to get into sports, you took high school games over the phone and wrote them up. 
Well, anyway, into my senior year, the Cosmos were moving over from Yankee Stadium to the brand new Giant Stadium in the Meadowlands. And they went to each local paper, ingenious idea, actually, trying to drum up publicity. So they went to all the New Jersey papers, and there were many of them at the time, offered to pick up all the expenses if they put a reporter on the team and traveled with the team, went on the road with the wow. team. So I got the opportunity to do that. The Herald News offered me a full-time job to cover the Cosmos, so obviously I jumped all over it. And I started traveling with the team while I was before I actually graduated. I took 22 credits my last semester while I was actually covering the Cosmos as a full-time beat, <laughs> missing classes and everything, and you know, trying to explain when I got back that I was actually on a Cosmos road trip working. So, uh, but I managed to get uh, take any pass fail, a Spanish uh, course pass fail. <laughs> I nervously checked the board and I got a P and was able to graduate and get on with my career. But yeah, I mean, at, in college, I got a lot of practical experience as a sports editor, the pay, an award-winning college newspaper. And that's how it all started. Yeah. Now, that was at a time when soccer really wasn't, not that it's, you know, that popular in the U.S. today, but it's fairly unknown sport at that time, wasn't it, over here? Well, it, it exploded. It really did. The NASL all of a sudden started attracting huge crowds, sellout crowds at Giant Stadium, actually, for a couple of matches. Then it kind of went away just as suddenly. But for a while there, it was burned brilliantly, yeah. that's for yeah. sure. So you wrote for the New York Post from 83 to 91. So are there any highlights from that period you can share? I mean, did you cover all sports at that time for the Post? Well, I basically covered that. It was a little odd because I was covering the Cosmos and the Giants at the same time. It was a very strange arrangement when I first started there, but I would go, I would be up at the Giants training camp in Pleasantville, and then I'd drive down to, and then get a story, and then drive down to Giants Stadium where the Cosmos were practicing and get a story and try to write them both up in that day. And it wasn't really working, as you can imagine. Yeah. I couldn't devote full attention to either beat. Basically, I left the Cosmos and went on to the Giants beat full time. And that's I stayed on football pretty much the rest of my career, although I went from Giants beat writer to more of an NFL writer at the Daily News. Okay. Now, who was the coach and the quarterback during that period of the Giants? Well, I started off covering Ray Perkins. Okay. And of course, the Giants were in there. What would they call it? it was, well, they weren't winning, that's for sure. <laughs> and that was after the fumble. I picked up the team right after the fumble, which turned things around in Giants history. Remember, they blew a game in the last minute where they were just trying to run out the clock, and the quarterback and running back ran into each other, ball went on the ground, and Herm Edwards, who later became the coach of the New York Jets, is now it's Arizona State, picked it up and ran it in, and it a miraculous win for the Philadelphia Eagles that just changed the direction of the entire franchise. They brought in George Young as the general manager, Ray Perkins as the coach. So I started covering Ray Perkins, and he eventually was let go, and they elevated Bill Parcells. So I was able to see the emergence uh, and the rise of Bill Parcells and covered the team through two Super Bowls with Phil Sims as the quarterback. But of course, when Parcells first got there, there was a big controversy. He started Scott Brunner over Sims. Giants fans were in an uproar, but Sims eventually got the job and led them to their first Super Bowl win in 86. Which, which you wrote the book about. I wrote the book with Jim Burt. Yeah, there are a number of Giants books in uh, following the uh, Super Bowl in Pasadena. 
some people actually claim that they were a distraction to the Giants because they missed these, they missed the playoffs the next year. <laughs> but I think there were 12 actually of some form, not all with players, but I wrote hard nose with Jim Burt. And it's funny, you know, I go back and read it once in a while, just a couple of chapters. And basically I turned the computer, the uh, tape recorder on and let him talk. And we kind of went week to week and I kind of tried to write it in his words because it was by Jim Burt with Hank Ola. So I tried to keep it as if it was coming from the nose tackle of the Giants. But he's a funny guy, and there was some great stuff behind the scenes that occurred that year with practical jokes and everything else. And it's an entertaining book, I will say that. (laughs) Now, was that well received by the team itself? What did Parcells have to say about it? Well, he wrote his own books, so he couldn't say much about it. But uh, actually, Bert was needling him because they had this really uh, love-hate relationship. And and Parcells thought the best way to motivate Bert was just to drive him crazy (laughs) and make him lift weight and do all these really crazy things and and just get under his skin. Because Bert made the team as a free agent. He came in with Lawrence Taylor in 81. Lawrence Taylor was, of course, the first-round draft pick. And Burt was a free agent out of Miami. And he kind of made the team by just kind of scuffling in practice and just being the hard-nosed nose tackle. And so Parcells figured that he could motivate him by just getting under his skin all the time and challenging him. And Burt actually (laughs) took the bait and responded to it. So it it continued on and on. No, is Burt still alive? Oh, yeah. yeah. I see him occasionally at my club at North Jersey. Oh, you do? Okay. And, uh, yeah, he's still out there. What prompted you to leave the Post for the Daily News? And was the culture very different from the Post? In 1990, Murdoch was for Rupert Murdoch, who is, owns the Post again, is actually running it as a newspaper, which is very unusual in these days, <laughs> was forced out by some legislation by from Ted Kennedy, who Murdoch owned both the radio station and a newspaper, the Boston Herald in Boston. And uh, so he was controlling the message there. And of course, he was conservative and Kennedy was not. So <laughs> Kennedy proposed some legislation in the past that you could not own a basically you couldn't own a radio station and a, and a newspaper in the same city. So he sold the Boston Herald. And because he also owned the radio station in New York, he sold the Post. And Peter Calico bought it. Long story short. All right. But Calico <laughs> came in and wanted to cut costs. And in 1990, well, actually, it was 89, in fall of 89, basically uh, offered buyouts by – you had a choice. You could work a four-day week and essentially get 80% of your pay, or you could take a buyout, a package. And we all – I remember we all had to go in and tell the sports editor at the time, Bob Decker, what we wanted to do, what we were doing. And so I went in with the uh, three uh, football writers, myself. Steve Serby, who was the NFL writer, columnist, and Peter Finney, who covered the Jets, went in one after the other and told Bob Decker that we were taking the buyout because it didn't make sense to work for it, you know, take a 20% pay cut and stay on with a newspaper that we weren't sure was going to survive anyway. So that seemed to be the wise decision. And then this is a great story. But 1990 Giants are uh, humming along. They eventually end up in the Super Bowl, of course, that year. And I've got two weeks left because it's two weeks notice type of thing. And I'm only working four days. And there's suddenly someone out there a fifth day. And he's not getting beat by the Daily News people. And they start getting worried about this. And so Bob Decker, the sports editor, calls me. He says, do you have anything to go to? I said, no, I have nothing lined up. He said, well, would you like to stay on for the remainder of the football season until the Giants are done? And I said, well, sure, I'll do that. And 
Well, what happens is they continue to send the guy out there for the fifth, and we continue to get beat on the beat. And Bob Decker, the sports editor, again called me and said, would you just cover the beat the way you usually covered it, which meant not only a fifth day, but sometimes a sixth and seventh day of overtime. And for those extra days, I was putting in for time and a half, and I was making more money than I ever had at the Post. And I said, well, look, if I knew this was going to be the situation, you know, it would balance out over the course of the year and I would never have left. I would stay if that, if you, you know, so can I still stay? And he said, no, Calico won't allow anybody to rescind the deal. So I covered the Giants until the Super, they went to the Super Bowl, obviously, to beat the Bills in the epic game. That's where Whitney Houston sang the national anthem. And the day after I did a follow, did a report card on the Giants and I was gone. I left the post and out of work for two years because the, the whole industry took a downturn. And then the Daily News came calling in 92. What did you do in that two-year period? Coached a lot of Little League. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was okay. It was fine. I actually, and I, were, I did some part-time, some freelance. I worked for the Bridgeport Post, did a column for them, uh, like a weekly column. So it was fine. And I did, you know, being able to coach Little League was great. I was able to spend time with my son and do a lot of that stuff. And that turned into a full-time job in All-Stars. So uh, I don't regret it. It was good. And it ended up getting on the Daily News, which is actually a better deal for me at the time. Yeah. Now, that was the lion's share of your career was at the Daily News, correct? Well, from 92 until 2015. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Any highlights, lowlights of... Culture, oh, you asked about cultural differences. Well, yes. They're tabloids with, and I hope I don't offend anybody to deal news by this, but they're tabloids with two different approaches. At the Post, with, where Greg Gallo was the sports editor for the longest time before Bob Decker took over, it was almost like he was like a Vince Lombardi type inspirational guy. I mean, he called me the night before the Super Bowl in Pasadena and said, you know, you're going to, I want you to write the game story of your life tomorrow. And I said, I thought I did that two weeks ago in the NFC championship game. <laughs> <laughs> so he was that kind of guy, but it was a real team effort at the post. And of course we were at each other all the time. When I got to the post, I, when I eventually got to the post in 82, when they hired me, I was thrown into the New York wars, newspaper wars, which was, uh, you know, it was kind of shocking, but you know, you got to get right in, you got to hit the ground running. So, but it was more of a, teamed approach at Post where everybody was sharing things, you know, hey, I heard this, this is good for your story, that sort of stuff. And it wasn't quite that way at the Daily News, but they were, and it continued. When I got to the Daily News, there was always, you know, you got to beat the Post, the story, all that stuff. So, uh, but a little different culturally in terms of, you know, how the writers treated each other. Yeah. You didn't go into a newsroom every day. You no. were writing on the road and filing stories. No, I was either home or at the stadium or at the golf course. I hardly, When I was at the Daily News, I think I went in two or three times a year. I went in for the football meeting at the beginning of the year. And I went in whenever my laptop broke. <laughs> That's a good service. <laughs> okay. That was about it. So, And I'm glad. I mean, I, some guys you know, spend their entire years inside on the desk, and that wasn't going to be me. In fact, that was I turned down an offer from the Post to work the desk. And uh, I went in there for like a trial and they offered me a job and said, I got to be outside. I can't be inside. So yeah. uh, I turned down that job and I said, if you have a writing position that comes open, call me. And it did come open and they did call me. So, But when you started your career, there were no computers. So how did you file your stories? Well, there were when I started my career at the Herald News in Passaic, I had a portable typewriter and you either dictated or you, they had these primitive fax machines that you would send copy over, and it took about five minutes to send a page. 
Right. Uh, it was like Clark Kent yeah, stepping in the phone yeah. book with his Philo story, right? <laughs> but dictation was funny because sometimes the, the dictation wouldn't quite come out. And I remember the Cosmos had a winger named Tony Fields was the winger. He was a British winger. And in the paper, it came out. If you remember, there was a female comic named Toadie Fields. Oh, sure. So that's how it came out of the paper that Toadie Fields had scored a goal for the Cosmos. <laughs> okay. Quite interesting so, because I think she was an amputee, actually. So. Was she really? Yeah, I think she was. I don't remember yeah, that. I think she oh, lost okay. her legs later. But okay. anyway, that's some of the perils of dictation. Okay. So you were a sports writer for two of the biggest newspapers in the biggest city in the country. Are there any incidents that, you know, in the over during that period of your career that you recall either poorly or well? Well, you said Bill Belichick was one of your biggest sources at that time. You were talking about memories of your career. Yeah, Bill Belichick was actually one of my biggest sources on the Giants when he was the defensive coordinator of the Giants, which is odd because how he would treat any of his current coaches if they were leaking information to the media. But, you know, we could meet him at any time and he would actually diagram plays for us and, you know, tell us what was going on behind the scenes. And in 87, that the Giants had won the Super Bowl. They were right, starting right. the 87 season in Chicago against the Bears in a night, Monday night. It was the kickoff game. It was a night game. And Elvis Patterson, who was nicknamed Toast by Parcells because he had been burned so often, had a miserable game. <laughs> Willie Galt was just lighting him up. And it turned out that Elvis uh, – and it turned out that uh, Elvis uh, – through Belichick, uh, that Elvis was in his room and they and uh, under the weather, so to speak, ha- having some problems with. Uh, he was over in Bybee, right? And he was sick and he was, was vomiting. And I remember a line about a vomit-strewn room. And anyway, right. so I wrote the story for the Post, and the headline on the back page of the Post was "Too much toasting." But the source of that was Bill Belichick, believe it or not. So. Interestingly enough, when you went up there, if you were a New York writer and you were up at the cover of the Patriots at a press conference, he would just basically ignore me or anyone else from New York. He just considered us the enemy at that point. And of course, he had totally turned his philosophy. However, I emailed him a couple of times. I emailed him after his dad died. And his dad was a great guy, totally opposite, gregarious, you know, outgoing. And Parcells used to use him at Giants training camp to say, hey, watch this player, you know, and tell me what you think, that kind of thing. You could always talk to Steve. His father's name was Steve, and he coached at Navy, and just a great guy. And I emailed him after his dad died and told him how sorry I was, and that is basically, you know, I always loved talking football with your father. He was really great. And he wrote me back a nice note about that. And then I had sent him my book or an ARC, advanced reader copy of my book, when the ARC came out in July, and I knew he couldn't get to it because of obviously his training camp. So after the Super Bowl this year, I let things calm down for a while, and I sent him another email, and I said, did you get the book? I know you haven't read it, but I just wanted to make sure you got it. And he said, it's on my, he actually said to me, it's wrote back, he says, yeah, I got it. It's on my summer reading list. And would you send me a copy with an autograph copy? Would you be able to do that? So I wish I had a picture. This would be great for the book publicity of Belichick on his boat, you know, in his flip flops in Nantucket reading my book. That would be great. You do have a picture or you'd like to have a picture of that? No, I'd like to have a picture. If you could find someone who could get in there. And... You should make a deal with you. Say you get an autographed copy if I get a picture of you on your flip-flops reading the book. You know, you're right. I didn't think of that. <laughs> anyway. But you're right. But anyway, I'm on a, so the City of Champions is on a summer reading list. So basically, I mean, we're not buddy-buddy, obviously, but it's not like we're, you know. Yeah. Now, was Belichick from New Jersey? 
No, Connecticut. He grew up in Annapolis where his father was the Navy coach. Okay. And then eventually ended up in Connecticut and went to school at Trinity, played lacrosse there. But I think he was, most of his formative years were spent in Annapolis. Okay. So you had two occasions over the course of your career, Hank, where you, you lost your job for different reasons, I guess. But more recently, you know, you're losing your job at the, at the Daily News really had more to do with technological change and what happened to, mm-hmm. happened to journalism in general. Do you have a point of view on what's been lost or gained oh, yeah. other than positions? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there were 12 people who were laid off. I was in the first big layoff, which actually worked out because with each successive layoff, the offer got worse until right now they have four sports writers left and five editors in the whole department. So so they're doing more contract work and freelance. But anyway, yeah, I think newspapers are no longer newspapers, except, as I mentioned, for the Post, which still operates as a newspaper. And what's lost is the value of the printed word, because what they value now are hits on the Internet. And that's how they sell their advertising, by the amount of the number of hits they get on a particular headline, a particular story. Now, that doesn't mean that if so if the headline draws you in, if it's got a big name in it or something like that, you know, and then you click. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean that you finish the story. You might read the first paragraph and say, this story stinks. You know, I'm done. So the quality of the work doesn't really matter anymore. It's just throwing stuff out there, getting a reaction to it. And it's why I think we have lost a little accuracy in the bargain, too. I mean, I really because they don't check things out anymore. They just throw things out. When I would get a source, I would have to corroborate things with two. That was the rule. You have to corroborate with two sources if you had an unnamed source, right, before you printed it. Now it doesn't matter. As soon as you get it, it's thrown out on Twitter uh, to get a reaction. And uh, a lot is lost in that. I mean, it's not journalism is losing in the deal. It's embarrassing itself, and especially lately. And I'm not talking about just sports, but on news side with its kind of knee-jerk reactions. and as a profession. And newspapers now, I mean, it's a dying industry. I recently went back to Garfield High School to talk to uh, some of the classes there about my book. And I just asked uh, about how many kids read the newspaper. There was about, I think there were about 50 kids in the auditorium at the time. And three of them raised their hands that they read newspapers, which is a real shame. Now, I know, and I should have said, well, how many of you read newspaper online? And I don't think it would have been much more than that either. I think that you know, it's not great. And when I got let go, I was more because I got in at the right time and not at the right time. But I was more concerned with the people who were the young kids who got let go because I saw their industry just disappearing. And I mean, now people have to get into other areas. There's communications is still vibrant, but the actual newspaper industry and what we used to do in bringing the news and bring the action to the. That's what I tried to do when I was covering. I tried to be the eyes and ears of the reader and convey that the next day in, in my story. And I think that's lost today. I don't think yeah. people try to do that much it, anymore. It's I mean, really, there are exceptions. There are some really good stuff still being written, obviously. But as a whole, I think the printed word is devalued now. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's the death of an art form, you know, and I'm not sure it's coming back. So, but the good news is that you used the period of time after you left the Daily News to write your book, and you spent a long time doing it. Can you give a summary? I've read the book I got my copy, and I hope to see you maybe at the uh, at the dinner coming up for the uh, Metropolitan Golf Writers Association. Oh, yeah, get you, there. get mm-hmm. you to sign it, autograph it for me. But can you give a synopsis of the story, maybe to entice people to buy it? I think it's a great read. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, it started as the story of the 1939 National Championship game of high school football. There actually was such a thing. 
And Garfield High School, my alma mater, went down and beat Miami High in the Orange Bowl on Christmas night, 16 to 13. Now, I heard about the story from my dad when I was a little kid. It's pretty much the first thing I ever heard about sports. And probably one of the reasons why I became a sports writer, it just got me involved. And I was really into going to high school games and watching the team. But back then in 39, high school sports were as big as professional sports in this country. Garfield that year played before 79,000 people in total, their games. So that gives you kind of an idea. The championship game of the city of Chicago between the public school champ and the private school parochial champ drew 100,000 people to Soldier Field. So it was more than just, you know, high school kids going out there and playing. They had a big following. There was betting and everything else. And so I followed the story out to its, I followed the research where it would take me. And I not only covered the game from the standpoint of both teams, Garfield and Miami, and contrast the living condition there, the worlds these players lived in, but I also put it in context what was going on in the country pre-World War II. So I have chapters on the sinking of the Athena, which occurred on the first day of World War II. A German U-boat actually sunk a British ship coming to America. I have a chapter on segregation in Miami because it played a part in down there in the schools. <laughs> And a polio crisis because the game was played for the benefit of FDR's Infantile Paralysis Association. So I kind of took it in different directions. And I think it just gives a – and I've told the reviews, which have been really good, all say that I kind of – I gave a really good snapshot of the time and the era. And you get a good feeling for what it was like not only to just play sports then but to live in – in the United States, and particularly Miami and Garfield. Well, I'll give you one reader's perspective, Hank. I mean, as I'm reading it, I just kept thinking, this is more than a storytelling venture. I get the sense that this was, that you enjoyed every minute of interviewing and reconnecting with, essentially, these were the people who established, you know, it was an important part of your childhood and the community where you lived. And I wondered after I read it, whether you had went through postpartum, you know, because it was, you weren't just creating a book, it was a whole experience for you. Yeah. That's quite true, and I appreciate that. But yeah, I spent, I did about 80 interviews. The one thing I regret is that I didn't start it like 10, 15 years earlier when more people were still alive, more of the players. There were only just a few who were. But I kind of made up for that by just throwing myself in front of uh, microfilm readers at libraries from here to Florida. And it was my time machine. I would live those seasons through the pages of the newspaper, which, of course, was very descriptive back then. The, the sports writers back then, you know, they told the story and they got behind the scenes. And with high school sports being big, I had a lot of sources. So I was lucky in that way that the writers, the sports writers of the day were that descriptive, not only of the games, but what was going on between the games in both cities. So I was able to kind of bring things out, actually unearth stories that would have been buried forever because who's going to go back and get these things? out of the archives. And so that's what has really been gratifying about the experience is that it's made an impact on some of the people in their 90s who are still alive. And Benny Babula was the Garfield star and his girlfriend was is still alive. So I was able to interview her. And she's, of course, thrilled with the book. After I wrote the book, the water boy's son called me and said that his mother, the water boy's wife, girlfriend at the time is reading the book and it's making her feel like she's 15 or 16 years old again. So that's cool. And then the other part of it is that in Garfield, it's kind of, it's the thing in Garfield. It's been, it's everyone in Garfield is very excited about it. And the kids are too. The school, the drama club is putting on, is adapting my book as a school play to be performing it Thursday and Friday. 
and the entire school is into it. The football team, they have, how often do you see a football team and the drama club get together? <laughs> right. right. Well, they are at Garfield because the football team is running the naked reverse, the, one of the big plays in the game oh, down in Miami. Yeah. And since the drama club couldn't really quite pull it off, the football team is doing it. And in fact, one of the kids that when they were rehearsing the play, the, the left end who was playing the left end on the Miami team said, geez, I got beat on this play against Glenn Rock. <laughs> That, that's pretty amazing that a high school would do a, an adaptation of the book. Now, have you read the screenplay yet? Or the, I guess they call it a script. No, I'm going to go Thursday. I'm going to see the play. It's great. I'll, I can't wait. That's going to be I, emotional I for you, I would think. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be really neat. And I'm told by the advisors that the kids are really into it. And I did speak to some of them when I went back to Garfield a couple of weeks ago. Just They were asking all sorts of questions about the players and what were they like and this and that. And I was told that there were like 200 people in the auditorium the other day for the rehearsal. Of it. Wow. And is it sold out? It must be. Well, they're putting it on for free. They stopped selling tickets and they're putting it. So it's going to be a good crowd. I don't know if the auditorium's not that large, but I'm sure it'll be close yeah. to capacity for both performances because the entire now city is into it. They're, sure. I think they're busing in the senior citizens from the senior oh, citizen cool. center. So it's going to be really neat. It makes the three and a half years I spent writing the book and researching it worthwhile. Oh, sure. I mean, in addition to being a local hero, one of the things that I saw you do, which was unusual, is you established really deep personal relationships with some of the guys you interviewed. I mean, how often do you get, for example, Walter Young, who was on the team, left you his championship jacket and two Letterman sweaters. He bequeathed those to you when he passed away, right? Yeah, well, Walter was quite an individual, one of the finest men I ever actually met in my life. And I'm just sorry, I we came in contact with each other so late. And we didn't have much time with each other, because two years into the process, he was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer. But, you know, Mitch Album had Tuesdays with Maury, I had Fridays with Walter. And we really bonded. And I lost my dad in 86. And yeah. uh, it was, you know, able to talk about Garfield stuff again with him was like, you know, talking to my dad again. And he would tell me I know more about the game than he did. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably and, right. Yeah, he would love to hear my stories, and I would love to hear his stories. And we would just, you know, I turned the tape recorder on and do it that way, and hours and hours of tape on him, which I actually, when he passed away, I offered it to his family. I said, would you, I could get you the tapes, the MP3s, so you could hear your dad talking about the game itself. So that was kind of cool. But anyway, when he was diagnosed he said, look, I'm giving you my varsity jacket and my two Letterman sweaters because I know you'll take care. You'll appreciate them more than anyone and that you'll take care of them. So when I do talks at library talks, I do bring the Letterman sweaters and the, and the varsity jacket with me. And they're in wonderful shape. I mean, Walter was a meticulous guy. So they don't look 80 years old, even though they are. I have a picture of you standing with them yeah. posted on the Golf Yeah website now. I saw that, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Now, who has You can see how great I mean, they look. Yeah, they look brand they look new. Like you can still wear them today. Yeah. So. In fact, I do. When I went back to the homecoming day at Garfield, I wore the jacket. Oh, that's great. And people said, well, you were on that team. I said, no, this season's <laughs> 39. Yeah, I missed it by a few years. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, who wants the football? You have a picture of you holding the game ball. That's uh, in a high school trophy case. Oh, so is it? Yeah. Okay. It's, hope, uh, it's in, not as lost its air. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope <laughs> it's, it's locked. There. I hope the case is locked. Yeah. <laughs> Let me talk to you about another book you wrote before City of Champions, and that's the book you wrote in 98 about Tiger Woods. Now, did you work directly with Tiger and Earl Woods on that book? 
<laughs> That's very amusing. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. No, it was, quote, an unauthorized biography. Oh, okay. And it really set Tiger and I off on the wrong foot, so to speak. Uh, and I remember a particular press conference. I wasn't the only one to write a Tiger book, and there were others. But, of course, we didn't obtain permission. And he complained at the press conference about people making money off his name, which is ridiculous because I made $5,000 on that book. And he made $5,000 in about two seconds for, you know, his American Express deals. And that was, you know, and then that's back in 97. So Tiger and I never really had a close relationship. And I think it started with that thing. Did that hurt your ability to uh, work with other tour pros? Oh, with other tour pros? No. Okay. Phil and I, for instance, you know, obviously if I wasn't with Tiger, I was with Phil, right. that kind of thing. But we have a good relationship. And I have a relationship with, you know, a number of tour pros. Yeah. Not that I became buddy buddy with them by any means, but you know, a good working relationship. And it was always difficult to get a good work relationship with Tiger anyway, because he would never open up. He'd do his press conference, he'd do a little scrum afterwards, but to get a one on one with him was impossible. Although he did have favorite outlets, Team Tiger did. And for instance, uh, they would feed a lot of stuff to ESPN at one time because ESPN was giving him some positive publicity in the wake of the uh, fire hydrant. So, <laughs> <Fire engine. laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, so, ESPN writers were the got, you know, he would call on them in press conferences and he would kind of joke with them and call them by nicknames and stuff like that. It was kind of obvious, but not that he gave them anything great anyway. Yeah. Because he never really did that. In fact, Clifton Brown, <laughs> Clifton Brown, great guy, was the beat writer for The Times. And he got an exclusive with Tiger. At his place in, I guess Tiger was in Orlando at the time in Isleworth. And he went down there and he did the interview and he came back and he wrote the story and it was like anything else Tiger said. He didn't give him anything, basically. Yeah. He just gave him what he was giving any, everybody else. He just was able to spend some time with him. But Tiger never really, there was, in, behind the mask, there was none of that. Yeah. Him. So that book you dedicated to your Uncle Ed for, quote, putting the sawed-off five iron in my hands so many golf lessons ago. Can you give us some background on, on that and your golf career? My uncle Ed was the golfer. My dad okay. was the bowler. They were both pretty accomplished in their sports. But, you know, when there would be some family gatherings, my uncle would be around. We'd go out in the backyard and chip and stuff. So he's actually the guy that got me interested in golf. And I would, in, earlier in my career, go to the, I'd bring him stuff back from the Masters and stuff like that. But my uncle Ed was a great guy. And, you know, I always, always appreciated him introducing me to golf. Yeah. Talk a little bit about your golf career. I mean, how often do you play? As much as, as often as possible. Okay. I have played, well, I, was, I, I shouldn't say that because, you know, twice a week. Oh, that's, that's good. So, <laughs> uh, But I am a member of North Jersey Country Club, which I joined after, and I have got an interesting story about that that's book connected about how I did get to North Jersey. But so I played there at least once a week. And then I've got all these various media days that I still get invited to. And I'm okay. I'm, I used to be an eight. Now I'm a 12. Oh. And yeah, I love the game. It's my thing to do. And when we were covering golf, we would take our sticks with us and play everywhere. And I have played a total of eight, and I keep track of it, 873 different wow. golf courses in my life. I'd like to get to 1,000, wow. but I've slowed down since okay. I'm not traveling much anymore. But for instance, if we were covering the Open Championship, it would be me and Mark Canizaro from the Post. And we'd have a bunch, you know, Damon Hack at one time was with us. We'd take the Sunday night flight out of Newark and we'd uh, land 
in the morning and we'd head straight to a golf course and play. Usually, if it was at Royal Birkdale, Lytham was close, so we'd head straight to Lytham and play. So this way we got to play La Rota. And then it would stay light in Northern England and Scotland until about 10, 11 o'clock at night. So while we were riding during the week, we would finish riding maybe at five or six o'clock and then go tee off, play 18. And then on the weekends, uh, since we really didn't have to beat to the course at the leaders teed off around three o'clock, uh, we'd get a crack at dawn tea time on Saturday and Sunday and play. And then we'd stay over Monday and play and we'd come back Tuesday. Wow. So we'd play maybe seven rounds of golf. We'd play more than the players themselves, especially okay. ones that missed the cut. <laughs> now, having played that many courses, do you have a list of top five that? Uh, well, Pine Valley, I know that's kind of you know, cliche, but Pine Valley is my favorite. If okay. you've ever been there, you would understand why. It's just pure golf. And from the time you go into the gates, I played Augusta National three times because of the media lottery, which is a little different than playing with a member. So because there's a lot of there's like a yard sale going on and it takes six hours because everybody's taking pictures. Right. So but look, I'm not please don't get I'm not (laughs) saying I would turn it down or anything. But it's you know, it is what it is. And they do treat you like a member for a day. And the funny thing is the first time I played it, it, it was the old regime. And it was like, as soon as you leave, like, please leave. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on the way out. But then they turned it into more of a kind of a media day thing. And they let, you were able to change in the champion's locker room and use the driving wow. range and stay. And they had, little, they had a little barbecue for you afterwards. So that was really nice. You got a little more feeling for the place. Yeah. Uh, but I did play it three times. And then, you know, I played seven of the top 10 in the world. And again, we played a lot of the British Ro- British Open Rota. So I played St. Andrews, the old course, and Carnoustie and Birkdale. Birkdale's fantastic. Hoylake. And over there, there's so many, like, little courses that you just, like, hidden gems type. Yeah. So uh, Crail comes to mind. Crail is, if you're ever in St. Andrews, sure. I, yep. that's such a wonderful place to play. Ely, again, another one around St. Andrews. Have you read Tom uh, Coyne's books? Yeah. Yeah. Go, yeah. A course called Scotland, Course Called Ireland. He gets really into the weeds there in terms of courses that aren't. Yeah, exactly. And you could spend a month there and just play a different course every day and not play a bad course. Now, the Daily News asked you to come back to cover the PGA at Best Page Black. Well, yeah, because I mentioned that they uh, they down to like four sports writers and five editors. So they have to – their freelance budget is expanded because that's the way they have to cover things. And Beth Page is in the in the backyard of, the, of New York, and they kind of look silly if – well, it looks silly anyway, no matter who won. But say Tiger wins the PGA, you know, and the Daily News isn't there to cover it. So we agreed on some terms, and I'm back for the week, which will be fun. I'll be back in the saddle and see some old friends. And You've played that course, play no doubt, right? You've played that course? Yeah, Beth Page is brutal. It really is. I don't enjoy it as much as I used to because it's just a slog. It beats you down. You have to carry or pull, you know, unless you hire a caddy. And every hole is relentless. It's just, there's no breathers there, you know? And by the end of the round, you're really, it's a physical challenge because every hole, you gotta, it's a long walk and there's a lot of hills and everything else. So if, you know, I'm not complaining, but I'm, you know, 65 now. So it was a lot easier to play when I was 35. Do you play from the whites there? Yeah, I wouldn't go back to the tips. No. What, do you know the slope rating? It's long enough from the whites. I don't. No, it's got to be in maybe one. Yeah, it's crazy. It's still crazy. You know, the sign that says expert golfers only, that's there for a reason. You could play from the seniors or the ladies team and still be plenty of golf course for you. 
Any predictions on who's the names likely to be at the top of that leaderboard? Well, it's a bomber's course. You got to be long and putting doesn't matter as much. There's not as much of a premium on putting, although they'll try to speed the greens up as much as possible. So, you know, you're looking at the usual cast of characters there. I think Brooks Kepka will be certainly in the hunt and DJ, especially since he's off to such a great start. And Rory again, who's off to a good start this year. So uh, that's what you pretty much get out of it. I mean, Lucas Glover won the one year. Tiger won, obviously, and then Lucas Glover in the second year U.S. Open. But that was a strange week because of all the rain delays, and that was more a test of patience. It became a test of patience more than anything else. So you got a little bit of an oddball winner, not that he didn't deserve it, but if you remember, there were a whole bunch of guys in contention that kind of dropped off. I think Duval was in contention, and Phil was in there for a while, And uh, but you know Glover hanging on, and again, was the most patient golfer of the week, and that's what it rewarded. Yeah. Do you have any plans to write another book? I have a couple in mind, but okay. I'm not jumping into it as okay. of yet. We're going to see how this thing pans out. Hey, look, it's not a mon- you don't profit from writing a book. You can never get paid for the time you get put in, but you put into it. And I don't regret the time I put into this one because I had a passion for it. And I've got a couple of other ideas, but I'm not sure I'd want to put the time in unless I knew I could get the reward, the financial reward for it, which just doesn't make sense. Will it be a book that requires the level of research that you did for City of Champions, do you think? Well, one of them is the, uh, I'll just tell you what they are. It's kind of like a spinoff of City of Champions. I don't know if you read this, the chapter where the uh, the segregation chapter that leads off with a player from Toledo White, who a black player, lineman Floyd Wright, who the team brings down there, even though he can't play in the game, and he ends up watching the game from the top of the bus underneath the tarpaulin. They hit him underneath and then his son turns into Ernie Wright, and his grandson is Howard Wright. So uh, I would trace that whole story of the Wright. I've got the name for it, too. It's the Wright stuff. Oh, R- okay. W-R-I-J-E-T. And then I just got a little thing about it. I think maybe putting it together a book of vignettes about Little League, but what's right with Little League? Because uh, everybody complains about what's wrong with it. But really, there are some really good things about it. And I've got some stories myself that I would get in there and then just find bunch of stories that other people have, inspirational stories, uh, sure. sort of thing. Has there been any talk of a movie for City of Champions? Have you been approached by any? Uh, Not yet. Anybody? Okay. We're, we hope there will be, Okay. but haven't heard yet. We're trying okay. to get that ball rolling. You know, maybe after the Garfield play is such a big success. <laughs> right. Well, could win an Academy Award or an Obie yeah. or something. You never know. So anything you want to plug in terms of, uh, I know you have some upcoming events where you're going to be talking about the book locally. Let's see. I've got something coming up. Well, August 1st, I'll be in Montville, New Jersey at, at the library as part of the adult lecture series. And we're trying to work something out with the Clifton Library where I appear there before Father's Day. But that's not been, we haven't set that yet. Because this is a perfect Father's Day book, and Clifton's right in the epicenter. It's right five miles from Garfield, so it's pretty much the home bookstore for Garfield. So we're trying to get that going, too. And then I'm going to appear on a – and again, I'm going to be doing something on the Jersey 12 cable vision. We're going to be going back to Garfield and filming some stuff there and, and bringing in Al Cachadorian, who played against the Garfield team and is, is for Patterson Eastside and is still – alive and very vibrant. So we're going to try to bring him in there and talk about some of the memories he had playing as that team. I don't have a date for that okay. yet. What about people go to a website to learn more about the book or to order the book? They could go to hankola.com okay. and then uh, there's a book page. Just click on the big book there and it'll take them to the book page. And I have all supplemental material in there too. So if you're reading the book, uh, you could go to the supplemental material for say chapter one and get stuff there or 
the Athena chapter. There's stuff on the Athena. There's less stuff on the polio chapter and some other things. I also have, which is really fantastic, I have color footage of the 1939 Garfield Passaic game on my website. I saw that, which is amazing. Uh, Isn't it? It looks like it was taken like, you know, two months ago. Because usually from that era, you see grainy black and white film. And to see this come alive, it's a wow. That's, you know, wow, they were actually living back then, you know. It just makes it even more real. And then I have some other things on there. And looking at those, Hank, it it looked more like a rugby game than a traditional or modern day football game. It's like they were just wrestling with each other for the most part. (laughs) Well, it was single wing football. So it was run based. And the single wing is actually it's a beautiful formation because it requires such teamwork and precision. The blocking has to be exact. And it was choreographed. And the best teams could do it well. Garfield was one of those teams. And then if you had a big back like Babula who would run behind it, it was it's really a thing of beauty. There's a particular – Babula gains 193 yards. That game gets Pasek. It was Pasek's only loss all season. And I think there was – I think he had a 48-yard run. I don't know the exact distance. But he came around the end. You could see the blocking pattern develop. You could see him cut back inside. You could see him give a couple of guys a stiff arm, then almost go down, lose his balance, regain his balance by putting his hand on the ground up again, and then finally running through a couple of Pasek tacklers and finally being brought down by a hustle play from the backside. A guy that was actually knocked down in the first wave of blocking came all the way back down the field and and helped bring him down. That guy was named – here's a great story too. That guy was named Dan Kuzma. And when I did a talk at the Watch on Booksellers in Montclair, afterwards, that guy comes up to me. He says, I'm Dan Kuzma. I said, your father played for Passaic. He said, yeah, I was just happened to be reading the book, and I started reading about my dad in this game and how he made this tackle. And then I told him, I said, look, I could do one better than that. I said, go to my website, and you'll see your dad playing in the game in color. And after he did it, he just couldn't believe it. So he says, I just couldn't believe it. I'm watching my father play in a high school game 80 years ago. So that's kind of neat. It's one of the, again, that's some of the neat stuff that have happened because of the book. Yeah, that's pretty cool. My last question, Hank, is do you have any words? I mean, even, you know, following up on some of the things we said about the future of journalism as a career, do you have any words of advice for people who have any interest? Well, you got to be branched out and be flexible. Realize that, you know, not everybody covers the PGA tour for the New York Times. There are only a few of those jobs in that. You know, it doesn't pay well. Journalism is not a profession that you can get rich with unless you become really one of the big names. And there are very few of those. So if you really have a passion for it, yes. But if you don't, (laughs) I'm not sure if I would advise people to go into it because it is a hard thing to do. And there are so few newspapers, especially as a dying industry. But if you want to get into something like communications for the web or you're doing blogs, stuff like that, you know, there, there are still... There's still avenues for that. Well, that's great. Listen, I appreciate your joining us today, and and I feel honored to have spoken with you about uh, your career and your book, and I'm going to be looking for you in the near future because I I want your autograph on it. uh, Oh, yeah, I'll see you at the Met Golfers. I'm actually uh, presenting Larry Dorman, who is this year's winner of the Lincoln Word and Award. So it's it's like I'm going to be in Butler Cabin putting the (laughs) green jacket on. That sounds good. As last year's winner. So that'll be fun. Larry's a good friend and well-deserving of this award. Thanks again, and I hope to see you soon. Thanks, Hank. All right, Gordon. Thank you again for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay. My my pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. 
Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to golfyad.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 